you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. All right, Wolf and Sarah, thank you very much, and welcome to Fast Money, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Hope you're having a great Thursday wherever you may be. Your traders tonight are Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Stephen Grasso. Tonight on Fast, Amazon just keeps amazing on. The stock hitting another all-time high, but hasn't come too far too fast because everybody is buying the same thing. We're going to dig in on that. Also ahead, ooh, the banks getting battered again, but one of our traders says... This could be one of the greatest opportunities to get into some long-term investments. Going to tell us why. And later on, a staggering stat that you have got to hear around Netflix. That stock continues to be bought as we all binge-watch TV. We are going to get to all of that, but we have got to get to breaking news that is important on the virus, and it's also moving the market after hours. Gilead Sciences shares they are surging on some very promising drug news. Let's get right now to Meg Terrell with more on this big story. Meg. Hi, Brian. This is uh, breaking news from Stat News. Uh, basically, they got a glimpse from one of the hospitals that has been enrolling patients in a clinical trial of Gilead's remdesivir, the University of Chicago. Um, and essentially what they saw in video communication to faculty members there um, is a report that on the clinical trial, it sounds like the patient's uh, according to them, are making rapid recoveries, um, at least in terms of their fever and their respiratory symptoms, stat reporting nearly all patients discharged in less than a week. Um, so this is not controlled clinical trial data. We are still waiting for that from Gilead and expect to see the first of it later this month. It is a glimpse into what one of the sites that is running this trial is seeing, uh, and it looks pretty encouraging, guys. So we're all going to hope that we see this continue to bear out when we see the bigger data set. But it is our first glimpse into a clinical trial. Uh, and as my friends Adam Feuerstein and Matt Herper, the reporters for Stat News who broke this story, uh, report, it looks pretty encouraging. Brian? Well, that is some fantastic news, Meg Terrell. Thank you very much. Gilead moving up. The SPYs, that is the ETF. That market will move after hours, even though the overall futures, remember, are not trading. Guy Dami, we have talked about this theme sort of a lot. And we'll get to Amazon in a second. I want to focus on this because... Yes, there's a lot of data that comes every day, but I would argue and see if you agree or disagree. The only data that really matters for the markets is the health data right now, or at least I would say matters the most. It clearly, the market's concerned about that as it should be. I mean, it's, it's human beings. I mean, that should be, you know, top of mind for all of us as well. So this is obviously good news. Anecdotal, I get it, but good news nonetheless and in terms of, you know, staying with Gilead, a name that we've been talking about now for a while, I'm looking down, I'm trying to see. I think it closed around 77, probably trading north of 83 right now. There's no reason not to stay with this stock into earnings at the end of the month. I'm not suggesting it's an earnings story, clearly not. But, I mean, this is one that's probably going to have some tailwinds. It's had tailwinds, and obviously those tailwinds are going to continue to blow in their favor, at least for the next 10 to 14 days. So if you're asking how to trade Gilead here, you stay long to name in earnings at the end of the month, Brian. Yeah, I mean, Tim Seymour, it's, it's a coronavirus play. It's been a popular stock, certainly. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. This news just broke. 
a few minutes ago, but is there any fear of everybody kind of rushing okay. into the same <laughs> names, which, by the way, we'll talk to on Amazon in a second as well. Well, that's what we're here to do. And, and I think at least to point out that, that uh, biotech was rallying uh, during a difficult period of the market going into COVID-19. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I think your best move is, is a basket of big cap pharma and a couple of the biotech names that have exposure, not just on COVID, uh, but, but well, uh, around testing, or around uh, pharma, around the fact that uh, either way, OTC has been a very, you know, major seller in a lot of the big pharma names. They're also uh, independent of covid have, have reasonably predictable earning streams in big cap pharma, great balance sheets. We're looking for good balance sheets, and they're paying good dividends. So uh, Merck, Sanofi, we've talked about this week. Uh, Abbott Labs on testing has been another big story. Gilead, there's your basket, and it is interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at the, at the release here, Steve Grasso. And again, this is a, it's a fluid situation. Uh, there's an analyst out here from Learing a couple days ago talking about uh, will they have enough, talk about Gilead and Remdesivir, the drug, will they have enough international supplies? This is good news, but the, the reason I'm mentioning that is with everything we do, we need to be careful because th there's a long way to go, even with the promising treatment, and there are still many questions. I hope they are solved positively. Point is, for investors, you do have to be a little careful here, careful here do you not? All right, Guy Dami, what do you think? No, I mean, listen, being careful is never a bad idea, especially in the environment that we find ourselves in. You know, I've been trying to be pragmatic, you know, for the last couple of weeks. The, the S&P 500 has gotten to levels that, you know, we thought it would get to. It's probably higher now or will be higher in the aftermarket when it starts trading on the back of this news. But if you've ridden this Gilead train and you're saying, you know, it, maybe it's too anecdotal when people get in ahead of their skis, you know, here at $84, wherever the stock is trading, is obviously not a bad place to get out. It's pro you probably haven't seen Gilead here. I would dare say I don't have it in front of me, but over the you know, two and a half, three years at least. So it's not a terrible idea. My way of trading it would be to continue to hold it. Not that this is an earnings story, but I would continue to hold it into their release at the end of the month. I think that's the $100 table. If you want to go downstream, you might want to do the Steve Miller thing and take the money and run, Brian. Yeah, and if we could put up a longer-term chart, and, a, you know, Gilead was a $120 stock in June of 2015, been kind of flat money for a while, and it's, and it's really popped, obviously, as they work hard for this remdesivir, and the stock is up 10% right now after hours. So there's the breaking news on Gilead. We've also got breaking news on another important stock, one very important for the Dow, and that is Boeing. Let's get to that breaking news now with Phil LeBeau. Phil. Hey, Brian, uh, Boeing suspended production out of the Puget Sound area, uh, I want to say about two weeks ago. Well, they have just announced within the last few minutes that beginning next week, they will be bringing back production in the commercial airplane uh, division out there. And that basically you're talking about Everett, which is where they build the 787 Dreamliner, the 767, the 777. They're going to be bringing that, that, that production back in a phased approach starting next week. So really what you're looking at here from Boeing is two weeks where they were essentially down with no production, but they're going to start bringing it back next week, uh, obviously working with the local authorities in terms of making sure that uh, all of the production systems can operate uh, safely uh, as they all try to deal with uh, COVID-19. 
But obviously, Brian, this is important and welcome news for Boeing investors that they will be resuming production out in the Puget Sound area starting next week. Wow. Yet yet another piece sort of, Phil, of of good-ish news in a sense from a macroeconomic perspective. Boeing obviously sees something, whether it's in health or safety or demand, that says, let's get people back to work. Phil LeBeau, breaking news there on Boeing. Uh, Karen Feinerman, guy, okay, we're going to go back to Guy. Guy, you're going to get a lot of time tonight, I have a suspicion here, because the, t- the, the, uh, the, the, the cannon string between us and Karen was cut, I think. Let, let's talk about the macro markets. Three things have happened in the last 15 minutes that, from a macro perspective, bear weight. The president launched this sort of guidelines for the states, which, you know, seems fairly reasonable on its face. The Gilead News... And now Boeing, at least in Washington, if not in South Carolina, is going back to work. We're starting to see Germany is sort of mini reopening on Monday. There are starting to be some macro green shoots out there. And maybe I'm desperate for good news, Guy, and I apologize if I am. No, I I don't think you're desperate. I mean, look, yes, we're all desperate for good news, but I don't think you're reaching here. I mean, the Gilead story is very encouraging, without question. I missed the president's remarks. I'm sorry, getting prepped for the show. But what, from what you say, they were pretty thoughtful and, and, and it's seemingly uh, something that can be rolled out. That's encouraging. And obviously Boeing, which was a huge drag today on the Dow, despite the fact that the Dow closed unchanged, you know, it's probably going to get back half the losses we saw today. Everything on the margins is very encouraging. Throw on top of that the fact that the stock market is recovered in a very meaningful way. We're here at 2,800 or thereabouts in the S&P 500, the 50% retracement of the all-time high we recently saw and that low we saw on the 23rd of March, 2193. That's very encouraging. I think, you know, the Tim Seymour camp that, you know, that test of those March 23rd lows might not be in the cards is looking more and more reasonable. I will say, you know, despite everything we just talked about, I'm hard-pressed to have it, you know, a situation where we don't have some meaningful move to the downside. Now, that might not be 15%, but I could see it yeah. anywhere from 6 to 8%. But given the backdrop that you just talked about and the fact that the VIX continues to sort of melt away is absolutely very encouraging here, Brian. Yes. Yeah, and for the people that don't know, maybe I jumped the gun, Steve Grassle, the president, some headlines crossing, 6 p.m. press conference tonight, so in about... 50 minutes time, and he sort of gave guidelines to the states, like gyms can reopen in some places, bars cannot. That's what I'm referring to. Uh, we got to wait for more details at 6 o'clock. You had that. You had Gilead. Uh, you had the Boeing news sort of all factored together. And we can talk about the specific airlines also in a second because that was on the opposite side of the spectrum, Steve. I've got to imagine that there are some, again, green shoots out there. and Maybe we're grasping at those green shoots, but I guess who can blame us? Of course, and and I agree with you. There are green shoots, and I do think I'm still sticking to my guns that this market is going to be impossible to play from the short side for the next 30 or 45 days or so because you have people trying to get back to work. You have economies that are starting. So it's it's a fool's errand to jump in front of that trade. Now, with that Gilead news, we don't know where that's going to lead, Brian. Having said that, if that gains any, any type of steam and momentum, You can't get in front of a vaccine. A vaccine is the holy grail for this entire market. It doesn't matter what sector, what space, everything will rally. 
Now, when is your time to sell the market? When we get back to work, when the economy start up again. Because if we see that it doesn't happen in a smooth fashion and hospitalizations start to uh, tick higher, ventilators start to tick higher, deaths start to tick higher, then we will retest the lows. But until then, you have to kind of get out of the way of the market and just buy it or just stay on, to, hold on to your longs at this point. Yeah, and I don't want to Tim Seymour. I'm not trying to listen. I'm obviously to quote everybody on every network for the last month. I'm not a virologist, but we have all studied a lot about these 1918 pandemics. We had a run. It went away. Then it came back worse than ever in some places. There is always the risk, certainly, of that happening. And not to be sort of negative on it, but you look at the action in the individual airline stocks today, Tim. I've got to imagine that had to trouble you a bit, particularly because they're getting billions in taxpayer money and the stock market doesn't seem to care. Well, yeah, I mean, the airlines have a unique dynamic. And if you look at capacity cuts and, and, and the revenue numbers, we're talking about 85 to 90 percent. And we're not talking about uh, necessarily, uh, you know, we got numbers out of semiconductors, Taiwan Semi today, where they talked about uh, down high single digits. It's totally different. Uh, and obviously, in, in terms of the, the revenue, it's lost revenue. So um, the balance sheets uh, are eroding by the minute, not the day, not, not, the, not the week. Um, we know how, how much cash that, that Delta Airlines is burning. Uh, but but it still does come back to the duration here. The, the problem is the comments that are more about, hey, we can open up certain parts, but um, there are other parts that include uh, you know, uh, group gatherings, but obviously a lot of long distance travel or the implication of such uh, that investors, but uh, consumers won't be interested in going down that road. Yeah. Uh, but uh, again, the news yesterday on airlines was enough to see these things trade up four or five percent in the after hours on their balance sheets, on the impact of the government loans. I, I, I would tend at these levels um, to assume we priced in 85 to 90 percent downside. Um, go for the best balance sheets. Delta Airlines is that one. Yeah, Karen, listen, there was a I think it was a Cowan report out this morning and I was a little bit critical of it on social media. They said that Normal travel, what they consider normal, will not resume for three to five years. If you believe that number, then it would seem that just logic would say the airlines, no matter how much federal backstop they get, are uninvestable. I mean, they, they can't go on with this level of, of 97% empty planes for, for, for that much longer. Right. Although maybe there, there's a lot of middle ground. I don't know what back to normal means. I mean, they were operating, obviously, in the last couple of years. It was really boom time for them. And, um, you know, they were just able to add on more and more revenue. Who knows what the configuration of a plane will look like? I, you know, who knows if there'll be a middle seat. So I don't know that structurally they could get back to that. But there is some middle ground between where we are now, which is just about zero and some level, but I think capacity needs to be, utilization needs to be way, way higher. It has to be well over 50%. Or they, I mean, probably north of 75% for them to make money. So I don't own the space. I, I really do hope they survive. Um, but it, it, I mean, there are parts of this market that are just really not trading well. I don't know if you spoke at the top of the show, sorry for the uh, technical difficulties about banks, but airlines, banks, small caps, I mean, some parts of this market are not seeing this V-shaped recovery. Yeah, let's stay with you again, Karen. And again, yeah, listen, we understand about technical issues. The crew, everybody's doing a spectacular job just putting on the programming that we are every day. So we're good to see you, however that is. 
You know, you look at the cruise lines, a very damning Bloomberg Business Week cover story this week on that, the airlines as well. That's, a, that's one story. We understand that 22 million unemployed in the last three weeks. It's effectively every restaurant, hotel, and leisure worker in America is effectively unemployed based on those numbers. The banks, though, Karen, that's an unusual story. Look at Wells Fargo. If we could bring that up, down 5 or what, 6% today. That's a mortgage story, is it not? Are the banks telling us we got to be a little more concerned than other parts of the market seem to be? I think the banks are telling us, but they let us down, right? So they were they were hit a lot more than some, not not more harder hit than airlines or or um, leisure or cruises, but they were really hit a lot. I mean, I'm looking at J.P. Morgan. It was at about 2.45 times book. It's now at 1.5 times book. That's a whole book value of J.P. Morgan that's lost and. Obviously, they're going to have more big write-offs. They're going to have more big charges. But I think this dichotomy of where J.P. Morgan is trading and where the rest of a lot of big companies are trading, not all, but many, that, that's a big disconnect. I don't really see how that can continue. So I actually bought some J.P. Morgan call spreads today. I covered some uh, KRE, which is the regional bank short. I just feel like that divergence is really too big. Wow, you did buy you did buy some JP. You know, I've heard that JP Morgan has a CEO that people are pretty fond of, Karen. I'm just throwing that out there. He's known as being a <laughs> I know, a fine apparently. CEO. Yes. Karen, we'll see in just a I mean, I, uh, I I'm told. <laughs> I have learned a few things in the last couple of months on Fast Money. Karen, we'll get to you in just a second. We've got even in a, in a 20 minute run of breaking news. We have more breaking news right now, and this time it is on Uber for that. Let's go to Deirdre Bosa out west. Deirdre it just doesn't stop, does it, Brian? So Uber withdrawing guidance and giving preliminary Q1 finances, also taking a write down of $1.9 to $2.2 billion on investment. And a press release, Uber says that due to its financial assistance program for drivers and delivery people, uh, they expect it will reduce gap revenue by an estimated $17 to $22 million in Q1, an estimated $60 to $80 million in Q2. And when it's talking about taking a write down of $1.9 to $2.2 billion on investments, Remember that Uber just isn't isn't just Uber ride sharing. It's also Didi, Chinese ride sharing uh, company, which it is a minority stakeholder in, as well as Grab in Southeast Asia and Yandex, the ride ride sharing company in Russia. So not only is Uber's share price getting pummeled um, amid coronavirus, but other ride sharing companies in which it is a minority shareholder are also feeling the pain around the world. So um, it's not surprising that it's withdrawing its guidance, but perhaps. A reminder that all of ride sharing is getting hit by this. Um, back to you, Brian. Yeah, Deirdre Bosa, Deirdre, thank you very much. Uh, you know, Tim Seymour, stock's up 4.5%. And again, I'm not going to make these broad pronouncements. not for us to do. It's for you to do. You can certainly do it. Uh, Uber, one of the most valuable companies in the world for a long time on the private markets. Is there going to be room for ride sharing in the, in the near future for humanity, given everything that's going on? I mean, this is literally their business at risk. Well, look, I, I, I'm going to take a deep breath on all of these things that people say are never going to be the same. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to be cavalier. I don't think anyone's going to be cavalier from a health perspective. But what we started the show with is the most important thing testing uh, and some type of a vaccine, if not a, a, a full vaccine, giving clarity on that, 
Um, I, I believe I don't I don't love Uber. I didn't love it before this. Uh, but I think the opportunities that are being created, um, this this may be one of them. Um, this is a company that that obviously we've we've been critical uh, of them when compared to Lyft because of the complexity of their business model. Of course, that's what's given them more operational leverage. That's what gives them more problems right now. Uh, and I do think that's something that the market is, is playing against them. But clearly, um, that business has seized shut uh, over the last five weeks. Uh, and, and the duration of this is certainly part of what's going on. They have every reason to pull guidance. Uh, but I, I, I want to take a deep breath uh, on all these secular uh, dynamics and structural changes to businesses that people say are never going to be the same. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 we, we could go through them one by one. It's a full show. Maybe we'll do that on Fast Money. But you're asking me about Uber. Is rideshare done? No, it's not. Okay, and that, that's what I was asking. I don't think anybody's saying that it's gone. I'm just wondering there is an existential threat, certainly where people are not perhaps that thrilled about getting into somebody else's car for a while. By the way, no different than getting on a bus what are they or subway do? or an airline. They're going to buy cars. The data that we've seen coming out of China, Tim, is that as they come out, used car sales are soaring because people want to be in their own vehicle if they can. I mean, that's the data that we are seeing. I mean, there's, there's questions to be asked here, Steve Grasso, and that's your guys' job is to kind of look at history and figure out where some of the opportunities in all this mess may be. Well, when you look at it right now, Uber is up over 5%. So th those companies, I do believe that they'll be rideshare companies that survive. And Uber's chart looks a hell of a lot better than Lyft's chart right now. And when you look at what's not running after the bell is Netflix is, is not running. Amazon is not running higher. Zoom is actually down after the close. So there's going to be a rebound effect, Brian, of things that were the corona trade and things that weren't. And you're going to see that trade reverse, at least short term. And we're not reading into anything as gospel yet. But this is a good indication of when we do start to see substantive headlines around a real vaccine, what the market is hoping for and which direction the market is going to go and how exponentially some of these moves can possibly be. Yes, yeah, certainly. And it's not just about vaccine. It's about treatment, the timeline, the availability to the masses. You know, those things will certainly change the game. But we're here to analyze economic opportunity. I mean, lift up five and a half percent right now, but it fell four and a half percent during the session and now up on withdrawn guidance from Uber. All right, coming up, there is one stock that almost nobody has a debate about lately, and that is Amazon, the company hitting yet another record high. The question, are too many people piling in to the same name? We're going to talk more about that as well. We'll hit Netflix, more on this break in Gilead news as that stock rockets higher as well. We're back with more Fast Money right after this. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Well, the amazing Amazon really just 
continues to amaze and hitting all-time highs almost every single day. Look at this incredible run, up 21% in just two weeks' time. And it's an amazing company, Guy Dami. People are ordering. The company is delivering. Here's the question I have for you. Too far, too fast? Are too many fund managers and investors putting too much confidence in Amazon stock? Could have said that 10, 15, 20% ago. I mean, I think the stock, if, if my math is right, I think it's up almost 45% from the lows we saw in mid-March to where we currently are now, which is just an incredible move. And we actually, I think, collectively spoke about how well Amazon was trading in the wake of what was a pretty miserable broader market back then. To answer your question, I think Amazon reports on or about next Wednesday or Thursday. I mean, I would... If, if you were trading the stock here, I think you absolutely have to take profits ahead of earnings and look for a test back to the 2170 level, which, if you recall, was the previous all-time high. So a great run, probably justified. I can't, for the life of me, figure out a scenario where they blow earnings out that this will continue. So I would suggest taking profits into earnings next week. Karen Feinerman, guy says, if you own it, you should think about taking some profits. Do you own it? And if so, will you take some profits? I, no, I do not. I mean, I never got comfortable with the valuation, which was obviously a mistake everywhere along the way. I thought the piece, though, um, was interesting, you know, J.P. Morgan's piece on Amazon about, uh, I mean, I think the revenues are going to be gigantic. Also, the costs are going to be gigantic. You know, they $2 raises for their um, workers overtime. I think the minimum uh, wage is $34 an hour for that. I don't know if those costs will stay even if, if things slow down after this crisis passes or if the revenue stays as well. If, the, if people's lives have been fully transformed and they're not going back to brick and mortar anyway like they used to, um, I don't know. We'll see. I do think that the cloud business is is here to stay for them and to continue to grow. But I just, you know, valuations like this, I sadly can't get involved. I think I said that maybe, I don't know, 500 points ago. <laughs> Karen, don't worry about it. There's people that said it, have been saying it for 20 years, Steve Grasso. I mean, any valuation metric on Amazon has never made sense. I've been having the same discussion since they went public, whatever that was, 20 or whatever number of years ago. Valuations with some companies, in particular Amazon, have never seemed to matter. But should they? Yeah, no, I don't think they, they need to matter. This is a name. Let's start off with where Karen left off on AWS. That has been what people never factored in and what a blockbuster revenue stream that would be. But think about the other things. It's been Corona proof for everything that you mentioned, but also Prime Video, Prime Music. So... I was a latecomer to the Amazon pantry, but now you have these subscription methods of payment with Amazon that are like set it and forget it. So for me, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to turn that switch off once we come out of a hole and you're gonna wind up ordering these things, staying static on them. But to, to the, the, the longer answer is, I agree with guys, some resistance here at the 2465 level into earnings. I'd be taking profits, and the more we see vaccine headlines enter into the equation, the quicker people are going to vacate their Amazon position. So I would say sell and say thank you, Mr. Bezos.
Wow. Sell the news kind of an event there on Amazon.com. Tim Seymour, would you agree with that? Uh, you know what? I, I think Amazon is, is, first of all, always rewarded by the market when they're going for growth at all costs. So um, I, I think this is a good environment. Remember, on March 16th, in the middle of, of really uh, a parade of negative news, they said they're going out to hire 100,000 new workers. Some of that was obviously to pull in folks that they had already uh, furloughed, et cetera. Um, the last 75 that they just announced really are about going for it. Uh, I, I do think that Amazon, uh, Steve started to get into this. Um, what, first of all, the, the changes that we talked about in some other sectors that, that I don't think have to suddenly change after COVID um, is not what's going on with Amazon. Remember, they were taking market share. They were already destroying brick and mortar. Uh, they are now going to be a bigger player in household items and groceries. Steve talked about that. Um, that's a change that's, that's not going to change. Um, ultimately, if you think about it, they are also the biggest beneficiary. They happen to be the best operator right now. That's why the market is rewarding them. So as someone like Karen that hasn't necessarily been, it's not been easy for me to chase Amazon. Um, I don't know that for a stock that's only up 20% over the last 18 months, if you want to cherry pick spots, has to sell off big into these numbers, not in this environment. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, Guy, to Tim's point, I mean, listen, and again, not, not being hyperbolic, I mean, but if this continues for a while, you could almost see a retail landscape where it's Amazon, Walmart, Target, a couple of others, and no one else. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been headed that way. I mean, we were headed that way before anybody really ever heard of coronavirus. So to answer your question, I mean, it seems to be the trajectory we continue to be on. And I totally get what Tim is saying. You know, I'm, again, using the word earlier, you know, trying to be pragmatic in their earnings. I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a ridiculous concept to take some money off the table in a stock that's run the magnitude that it has. And I want to mention this quickly. I don't think any of this or, or any of us are doing this, but I'm trying to read through the Gilead um, note. And from what I can tell, this is more treatment than vaccine, which I think is an important distinction. If I'm wrong, please, please correct me. But, you know, I think, you know, you know, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves in terms of vaccine versus treatment. I think it's an important distinction at this point. You are right. What we've all been, I think, trying to do here on live television is whenever we're not on camera, at least I'm looking over and trying to read this University of Chicago thing. And remember, by the way, if you're just joining us before we go to break, why don't we bring Gilead back up? G-I-L-D, the news that Meg Terrell brought you at the top of the hour is that according to Stat News, which is sort of a pharmaceutical uh, news-based organization, Remdesivir, which is Gilead Science's drug, University of Chicago medical treatment, 125 people, two phase three clinical trials. Of the 125, 113 had severe disease. All the patients have been treated with Remdesivir, and they've had a fairly successful uh, rate of recovery or at least improvement from this study. Again, one study, limited numbers, not a vaccine, to Guy's point, but a treatment, but that's sending Gilead up. And by the way, when the news broke, you saw the SPY, the S&P 500 ETF futures spike as well. All right, we'll get you more on that. Obviously, it is moving markets. And by the way, the president, he's got a news conference planned at 6 o'clock Eastern time tonight. All right, coming up here on Fast Money, a staggering stat on Netflix. This is one statistic that you have got to hear. I, literally, if this doesn't blow your mind... I got nothing for you. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to CNBC's Fast Money, everybody. I'm Brian Stump. If you're just joining us, well, you missed a lot because there's been a lot of breaking news in just the last 30 minutes or so. Let's try to recap some of it for you. I got papers here, but let's just get to it. All right, we talked about the Gilead Sciences news. That's the most important, not only from a markets perspective, but from a health perspective and a humanity perspective. The company with some news that it's remdesivir, experimental drug in the University of Chicago treatment had some promising results as a treatment, not a vaccine, a treatment for coronavirus. That news sending Gilead Sciences stock up, and it also boosted the S&P 500 futures. You can see that. So SPY futures popping as well. Good health data means good market data. That's what really matters. You also had Phil LeBeau come out with some breaking news on Boeing. Boeing saying that it will resume production at its Washington State facility next week. Boeing jumping on that news as well. And finally, Uber. Deirdre Bosa bought you this a couple of minutes ago. The ride-sharing company is withdrawing guidance for a full year and saying it's going to take a write-down of $1.9 to $2.2 billion. Ride-sharing crushed, like all travel-related companies, as everybody has basically been ordered to stay at home. Three pieces of breaking news in the last 30 minutes. All right, let's move on now to three big calls on technology today. Goldman Sachs going all in on Netflix, raising their price target to 490. Berenberg also initiating Roku as a buy. This while JP Morgan Chase downgraded Twitter to a neutral from an overweight. Why don't we start with the Twitter downgrade here? And this is really an interesting one. Um, Tim Seymour, I'll come to you on this because what they're saying is it's a good company, but Twitter makes so much of its revenue from events and new launches, which J.P. Morgan thinks we're just not going to have a lot of. Yeah, and sports, too, is, is certainly where they've been attaching some of their new launches, too. So um, it's all about ad revenue. And, and certainly this is a company that actually I, I think was building momentum in, into COVID. They had uh, successive quarters of, of essentially uh, higher ad growth. They were certainly growing their DAUs. Uh, and I... I, I just believe that this is the environment where Twitter shines. I, I think um, although digital ad sales are probably the most vulnerable uh, in, in, in relative to some of the traditional linear ad sales because you can cut campaigns a lot easier, and we've seen some of that data already. It's why I think Google's underperforming in this marketplace. Uh, this is an environment with both with the politics uh, and with COVID where real-time news, this platform is unique, and at some point there is value on the M&A side for this. That's not why you own Twitter but it's a reason why you stay in the stock. 
Yeah, I mean, Steve Grasso and, and J.P. Morgan notes that monthly daily active users, MDAU, was strong in the first quarter, driven by product improvements in a heavy news cycle. What they say, Twitter is demand constrained even during normal times, and there's simply more downside risk than upside, according to J.P. Morgan. You know, when you look at Twitter, it's down 17% year to date. I agree with Tim. It's a great asset, but it's just in this environment, it's too dependent on advertising. And it's the same thing for me with Snap or Snapchat, which I am still long. That's down 20% year to date. So that one is a great asset as far as M&A is concerned as well. But you, you can't forget the elephant in the room, which is ad dollars. And unless, even if we see treatment or vaccines or the economy start up again, the last thing that's going to start up are ad dollars flowing into these two entities. So I would stay away from that, putting new money to work right now. All right, stay away there as well, guys. Thank you very much. All right, let's now move on to call number two, and that is Netflix <laughs> hitting another all-time high today. Goldman Sachs raising its price target to $490 on the stock. And Guy Adami, here's the statistic that I was teasing out. Netflix now has a market cap $16 billion higher than ExxonMobil. Now, at the beginning of the year, Exxon's market cap was $163 billion more than Netflix. They've done a, what, $180 billion 180 in four months. Unbelievable. I mean, if you just think about that, you know, if somebody told you that a year ago, you would have you would have just scoffed. There's just no way that's humanly possible. And here we are. And by the way, just one more statistic. I think with the move in Netflix today, I think it has a greater market cap than Disney as well, which I think is somewhat interesting. You know, Bank of America raised their price target, I think, earlier this week, 460 Goldman today, saying record new subs going to be added when they report, I believe, on the 21st of April, 490 price target. You know, we've been pretty steadfast on this one. It's been tough. It's had some hits and misses. But, you know, I think this is one you stay with in the earnings. And if you hit that 490 level, which given the way the tape is, it might happen over the next three or four trading days, I think you take the money and run. But, you know, you're going to see probably a slew of upgrades in this name ahead of earnings, I believe, on the 21st. Yeah, Karen Feynman. I mean, listen, and I get it. Netflix is a debt-heavy company. Their debt-to-EBITDA ratio is way higher than Exxon. Now, that may change given Exxon's recent fortunes, <laughs> and they just recently sold some debt. But, I mean, are, are you a believer in Netflix the stock, not Netflix the product? Right. No, I'm not. I mean, I think Guy's right. I think we'll see a number of <laughs> upgrades. I think everyone wants to follow themselves to be the highest on the street and Netflix, it, you know, it's reminiscent to me of what happened to Tesla earlier in the year before the COVID uh, story was uh, the big one of the year. Everyone wanted to up their guide, uh, not up their guide, up their price target, you know, by $100, $200. Also for a company that had a fair amount of debt that wasn't making money, that makes a great product. So I think that Netflix, obviously, you can see the appeal in an environment like this. It doesn't get any better for them. I think a lot of those um, subscribers will be very sticky. But I think I, that this valuation, here's another one that I just cannot get on board. Yeah, and I tweeted out early that uh, maybe Netflix's new model should be, or motto should be, put a tiger king in your tank. 
little play on Exxon there from the old days. All right, let's move on now to stock number three, and this stays in the streaming space, and this is Roku. Soaring as much as 15%, Berenberg initiating the stock as a buy, saying, and I read again, Steve Grasso, that Roku is an important partner for content producers navigating the shift of monetization from the linear to the digital world. Are you a believer and are you a buyer? I like the Roku product. I, I, I like what Roku puts, uh, Roku puts out. But I always put them uh, juxtaposed against Netflix. Netflix is not an ad-based model. It's a subscription-based model. Roku is an ad-based model. That's why Roku has underperformed Netflix. I would still continue to sell Roku. And I would average out of Netflix at this point, but I would not be a buyer necessarily of Roku. Okay, Steve Grasso there. Thank you very much. All right, coming up. We're going to move off technology and on to consumer products. Procter & Gamble reporting before the bell tomorrow. We're going to reveal why a big jump could be in store for the stock and talk about what guidance they may provide. And, of course, do not miss our continued special coverage of markets and turmoil. That is again tonight, 7 o'clock Eastern time, right here on CNBC. We'll be back with more Fast Money right after this. All right, welcome back. 22 Million. That is how many Americans have filed for jobless benefits over just the past four weeks. And that could affect demand for consumer giant Procter & Gamble, which reports earnings before the bell tomorrow. The stock has rocketed off its lows and is now down just 3% on the year. And options traders, some of them anyway, are betting that it could be about to jump into positive territory. Mike Coe here in San Francisco. More on options action on PNG. Mike, take it away. Procter traded four times their average daily call volume, so close to 37,000 contracts today. And right now, the options market is implying a move of about 4.4% by the end of the week. This is a low volatility stock, and it's implying relatively low moves for Procter & Gamble. The most active contracts were the April 24th weekly. Those are the ones that expire a week from tomorrow, the 128 strike calls. Now, a lot of those calls were actually trading as a part of a package. It was a 128, 130 call spread. And that gives us a pretty good sense of basically the range that the options market is expecting for this stock by the close of business next week. And that's a move of somewhere between 55 and 7.5% to the upside based on where the stock was trading in the middle of the day today. But after hours, actually, the stock is up a little bit. And of course, we saw earlier in the week that they are you know, continuing their dividend increases. So Procter & Gamble may be a place of stability and growth for people who are looking for a safer place to play, whether you're using options or stock. All right, certainly, Mike Coe, thank you very much. And by the way, Mike, we will see you tomorrow for the entire options action, of course, every week, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on Fridays. Uh, Tim, you got a, a little hesitation on P&G. What's your take? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, look, I, I get the fact that uh, with job losses and less discretionary income, there's going to be more stay-at-home, there's going to be more P&G products consumed. Um, I, I think that that's a trend, though. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the reverse airline trend. I, I think that's eventually going to fade out. I think they've also pulled forward. We know uh, this quarter is going to be excellent. I think the third quarter guide is going to be decent. Um, but this is, to me, not a secular change in P&G on a trailing basis. Very expensive. Not a little bit. Very expensive. So don't need to chase it. All right. Thank you very much. Steve Grasso, a quick comment here. And by the way, I want to, and Steve, you, you know, you're a floor trader at the NYSE. There's a lot of commentary. I'm sure you've seen people saying, how can the stock market go up when 22 men are unemployed? The stock market fell a month ago because it saw it coming. 
We should embrace the good news of the market now because the market, I think, is saying better times are ahead. The market is always six to eight months ahead of it, and that's what they're pricing in right now. You want to go risk on. Tomorrow could be an up 500 to 1,000 points in the, in the Dow. So I would look for risk on, get out of Staples. All right, Steve Grasso, thank you. All right, and by the way, we are awaiting the president's news conference, 6 o'clock Eastern time. He's got some guidelines for states. We'll talk more about that. Everybody, we appreciate it. Traders, thank you very much. Uh, also coming up, practical advice. Some of these new programs change the laws and rules around withdrawing 401k plans. What should you be doing with your retirement funds? We're going to get some straight-up advice just on that topic. It's important for you right now. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Just a reminder that we are, as a nation, awaiting the White House briefing on trying to reopen the economy slowly and with some of the steps. Let's get more to Kayla Tausch with a preview of what we might hear from the president at 6 o'clock tonight. Kayla. Hey, Brian, today President Trump told governors it will be up to them when they reopen their states for business. But so long as symptoms and cases and hospital occupancy is on the decline, the White House provided a three-stage roadmap for what this could look like. In the first phase, you would see gyms, big restaurants and sporting venues resume business with social distancing. Elective surgeries can come back online, too. In the second phase, they see schools and childcare facilities reopening, as well as bars with reduced occupancy. Non-essential business travel can resume in phase two. And then in the third phase, if states do not see any rebound in cases, Businesses that are open can increase staffing and senior homes can begin to accept visitors. Now, absent from the final document that was released today, any dates and deadlines about when exactly the White House expects this to take place. I'm told by sources familiar with the matter there were competing views on how much detail to put in this document and how prescriptive to be toward the states. I'm told the economic team warned that keeping the country fully closed for much longer would be economically catastrophic. President Trump today suggested uh, that some states might be ready to reopen before May 1st, though, of course, many others will come much later, Brian. And to that point, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo is developing his own reopening plan with the help of McKinsey and company. Reuters says he wants it to be Trump-proof. Brian? All right, Kayla Tausche. Kayla, thank you very much. We'll hear more in just about well, seven minutes' time. Well, the coronavirus outbreak hitting everything from your portfolio to your retirement fund. Coming up, we're going to hear from one man who will tell you how to navigate this storm. Some real-world practical advice for your retirement plans. It matters to your money, matters to us. We're back with that right after this. Uh, just a reminder that we are awaiting the White House coronavirus briefing. That will take place at 6 p.m. tonight. Well, as we await the president, let's talk about your retirement plan, because the CARES Act recently passed, made some big changes to how you can treat your 401k, your IRA and other retirement plans. Bring in Joel Shipman. He is head of intermediary distribution at Schroeder's retirement plan expert and all around good guy. Thank you very much for joining us, Joel. Um, listen, there's a lot of people, 22 million filing for jobless benefits. Some of them may be sitting on retirement plans. It may be tempting to go after that money. What should they be doing right now? Well, uh, thanks, Brian. Uh, great, great to be with you this afternoon. And that's a, that's a great question. So, you, you know, you've got people who, who right now are thinking about how do they put food on the table? Uh, you, you've had, you mentioned the 22 million who are unemployed. And 
So you think about what do I have in my retirement plan and what can I do about it and what's been uh, permitted by the CARES Act. So I'm going to break it into three categories, uh, broad categories, that is, loans, hardship withdrawals, and required minimum distributions. So as it pertains to loans, if a retirement plan permits, the Act has now doubled the participant loan limits, meaning that participants can now borrow 100% of their vested account balances up to $100,000. And importantly, for those who already have loans outstanding, they can now delay the repayment for up to one year. So that's the loans. For hardship withdrawals, ordinarily, if you're going to take a hardship withdrawal, there would be a 10% penalty for early withdrawal for those 59 and a half or younger. With the act, the government is waiving that penalty for certain circumstances. This is applicable to both qualified retirement plans and IRAs. Now, there are one of two conditions. And, that have, and as I understand it, Joel, you've got three years. You've got three years to pay back the taxes because you will you don't have a 10 percent penalty. You will owe state and federal taxes on any gains. But you've got three years to pay those back. Very true. And or, or the and or is that you can pay it back or you can just and, and, and you've got three years to get pay the tax if you want to if you want to keep it or you just pay it back for over three years. Now, you have to meet one of two conditions, and that is either you, your spouse, or dependent must have been diagnosed with COVID-19, or you must have experienced some type of adverse consequence from the COVID uh, economic downturn, such as a job loss, furlough, uh, lost revenue from small business, and the like. The last thing I just want to mention is the required minimum distribution. Now, for those who are over 70 and a half, uh, the government normally requires a minimum annual distribution from retirement accounts each year. Now, for 2020, the government will waive the required minimum distribution so you can retain assets. And more importantly, or equally as important, they'll waive the 50% tax penalty for not taking the, the required distribution on time uh, and now for both IRAs and defined contribution plans. Joel, this is the kind of real-world advice that we need right now. A lot of people are looking at their retirement plans and wondering, what could I do? What should I do? Joel Schiffman of Schroeder's will get you back on soon. Best to you and yours, Joel. Thank you very much. Just a reminder, the White House coronavirus press briefing expected to begin any moment now. Right now, I'll say goodbye. We'll see you tomorrow. Jim and Mad coming up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.